Cool. Is this a really mild mic? There we go. Yeah. Alright. That's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you're new to us, typically we go through a book of the Bible. Um, last semester we go through the book of Galatians. This semester we're going through the book of Psalms. I think what's helpful about the Psalms is that you can look at it through kind of two ways. That it, the Psalms are human experience in a broken world worked out through the knowledge of God or some what you might call theology. Um, how, like, how does my anger, how does my depression, how does the sense of where is God get itself worked out in a world where there is God? Like, how, what do we say about that? How does that work out? Or on the other hand, when there's a holy God or a God that's glorious or God that loves, how is that worked out through human experience? See that? It's kind of two sides of the same coin there. And that's what we're looking at here is this is Psalms. I've got to move that out of the way. Um, is the Psalms are both those things together. So excited to be here this excited to be here uh, this semester and going through these things with y'all. Uh, so let's get started. I came from uh, a school called Emory University. I didn't actually graduate from UNC, even though I love UNC, but I came from Emory University where I did my undergrad. And similar to UNC, there were a few heavy-hitting professors there, professors that everybody knew or were kind of aware were on campus. And one of them was a pioneering women's studies professor by the name of Elizabeth Fox Genovese. And I never had the pleasure of taking a class with her, but I recently read an account of her conversion to Christianity. And she talked about growing up as someone who is very familiar with Christianity, but who is definitely not a Christian. Can you turn this off? She does it on YouTube. Oh, it's mine. Uh, that's my bad. Um, sweet. I'm going to take that now. So she talked about her experience of being converted to Christianity. Cool. Um, she talked about growing up as someone who's very familiar with Christianity, but she was definitely not a Christian. And she talked about going back to church. She talked about wrestling with whether the Bible was true or not. Like all the things that you think about as someone is wrestling through, what, is it, what would it mean for me to be a Christian? But you know what was one of the things that she pointed to as the number one reason that started her down that path to th- rethinking Jesus? It was her experience with other very secular professors' view of authority that led her to think about what is a higher authority in my life. She read, read about her experience of being in a postmodern university setting. She said, What originated as a struggle to discredit pretensions to intellectual authority has ended at least in the American Academy, in a validation of personal prejudice and desire. What she's saying there is she knew there, there could not just be as many moralities as there were people. And she was left thinking there has to be some kind of moral absolute in the world. Otherwise, all the morality that we have is just made up. And if there is a moral absolute, there has to be someone standing above, over that absolute, ruling it or giving it ultimate meaning. Otherwise, any talk about civil rights, any talk about justice, especially for her in her field of study, any talk about women's rights was just kind of meaningless. So what, what does that look like here? Have you ever met with someone that you can have your, who kind of says, you know, you can have your way of thinking about things, but I'm going to have my way of thinking about things. And you have your theologians, you have your academics, your authorities, but I have mine, and they're equally right. We don't have to dispute about these things. They're all just as equally right. Have you ever had that conversation and thought, how? How? 
What's at the attitude at the heart of that sentiment? What's at the attitude of that? Um, I think it's that, uh, as scholars of religion have pointed out, that our country started when a group of people got together and said, you know what? I think it'd be better if we didn't have a king. I think it'd be better if we just got rid of these authorities. We need to be free to just kind of decide for ourselves what's right. And there's some really good things in that. Obviously, I love America. But that's colored the way that we see all authority, whether it's from our parents, whether it's from our government, even from the Bible, that we're shaped by these huge historical events that people decided hundreds of years ago what their authority was going to be or what it wasn't going to be. And here's the deal. We can all want God to be someone that we elect over ourselves. But He's not. And we can struggle with His authority over our morality, over our studies, over how we spend our time. But from beginning to end, one of those common pictures that God gives us to think of Himself is that of King. And if you really want to know God, then you have to know Him as a King. Because He's someone who rules over the world, He's someone that rules over us. So tonight as we look at Psalm 29, I want to ask, what does it mean that God is like a king? So I have three brief points to talk about God's kingship. He's a holy king, he's a glorious king, and he's a king that rules. So let's read Psalm 29, and we'll get started here. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon a skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare, and in His temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as King forever. May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. Let me pray for us and get started. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray that You would bless us with Your peace tonight. God, peace with You, peace with ourselves, peace with one another. Lord, I know that as we come in tonight, we, we wrestle with so many things. Lord, with anger, with guilt, with shame, with despair. Lord, with feeling numb, with numbing ourselves to you and your word. Lord, we do that in so many ways because reality is a hard thing to bear. Even at a wonderful place like UNC. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to see true and ultimate reality. That you're at the heart of it. Lord, I pray that you help us to find you tonight. To know your strength and your peace. We know these things through your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Alright, so how is God holy? Look at verse 2 here. It says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. You know, I think we can sometimes think to ourselves, I'm going to worship God because he's near to me or because he's love. And those things are true, but this psalm starts off by saying, Worship God because he's not like us, because he's holy. See, the word holy means different, it means set apart. God's fit to be worshipped because He's not human. He's not even angelic. He's the Creator and everything else is His creation. He's not something that we made. He made us and everything else. And because of who He is, He is fundamentally different and set apart. Atheists like Richard Dawkins are kind of fond of saying 
that God is an invention of the human mind. And I don't deny that I believe that every other God that people worship is made up. But let me ask you this. Who would make up a God like this one? Who would make up a holy God? The kind of gods that people make up and worship are ones that they're really in charge of, right? Like, they have to pray a certain amount of times in a certain place at a certain at a certain time or eat the right things or don't eat the wrong things. And if you do that, then you're okay. That God owes you something. And your work has essentially bought your way into that God's favor. That's what every other world religion is about. But this is not that kind of God. You know, we can tell ourselves, if I pray the right prayers, if I get involved in the right charitable organizations, then my bad stuff will kind of outweigh my good stuff, or my good stuff will outweigh my bad stuff. And then God has to approve of me, or He has to accept me. But what this is saying is, no, He doesn't. God is not elected. He's not democratic. He can't be bought. God is not a debtor to anyone. And God's made clear what you need to, to have in order to be acceptable for Him. And it's not working hard and being good. Because no one's works, no matter how good that person might seem on the outside, are able to make us right with the holy God. To expect to do that is like dropping a boulder on a spider web and expecting the web to hold up the boulder. Like, it's just not possible. The reason that Christianity is not about moralism is because our morality can't be the basis of a relationship with a holy God. Why not? You know, I know I've used this illustration with some of y'all in small groups before, but think about this. I'm not saying, asking anyone to do this, but if someone were to come up here and slap me in the face, like just slap me, what do you think the consequences for that would be? Like, next to nothing, right? You'd be like, ah, stop it. Quit. <laughs> My face. <laughs> like, no, like, nothing really would happen to you, right? But, if you were to slap the Chancellor of UNC in the face, what do you think would happen? Woo! Right? You get expelled, maybe a fine, maybe some jail time. Like, again, not advocating that. Or, raise the bar even higher... What if you were, again, not advocating this, what if you were to try and slap the President of the United States in the face? Like, I mean, I'm going to say try. Like, it's not going to happen, right? Like, you get shut down before that happens. But there's real consequences for it, right? As you move up from person to person to person, the consequences go up too, right? Like, I'm not a big deal. Slap me. Not that much is going to happen. Huge deal to slap the President of the United States, though, right? When we talk about God, we're talking about a king that is above matter and time and energy. We're not talking about a creation or a person. We're talking about someone who stands above people. Like, he spoke and the world came into being. Angels worship him. He is holy. And when we sin, we act against God, we slap him in the face. What do you think are the consequences for that? I mean, if you slapped the president in the face even just once... Is there anything that you could do to get out of the punishment that you justly deserved? Of course not. I mean, you're in Guantanamo Bay tomorrow. <laughs> How much more so for a holy God? How much more so for the one who made the universe and stands above the universe? Like, he's holy and we're not. There's this huge gulf between us. All right, how is he glorious? How is he glorious then? Look at what it says about God's glory here. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The God of glory thunders. Look at the way that holiness and glory are connected here. God's holiness leads to glory. 
just like kind of white-hot plasma is part of what a star is, and heat and light come from it, so holiness is part of who God is, and glory radiates out from Him. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod, which means weight or heaviness. Not light, it means weight. It means heaviness. God's glory is like a sort of gravity, a sort of gravitas, which radiates out from Him and draws people in at the same time. I mean, think about this. There's a heaviness that comes with knowing something or someone that is truly wonderful or powerful. Like if someone were to hand you the Declaration of Independence and put it in your hand, there would be like this weight there, this seriousness, this gravitas that this piece of paper had, right? Because there's a glory there. Or if the president or the chancellor came into this room, you'd be drawn to them. Because there's a gravitas, a weight that comes with their person. People who are celebrities get called stars for a reason, right? And those are just people. We're talking about someone who stands above people. We're talking about the Creator. God's glory flows out of His person. It flows out of His holiness, His otherness. The fact that He is the ultimate reality that creates this reality that we live in is weighty and amazing and beautiful. And something that you and I were made for and which we long for. And the reason that you get bored with Bible study and prayer and churchy type stuff sometimes is that you miss the glory that the Bible is constantly pointing us to. That you were made for this glory. But you're constantly missing it. And so you seek glory in other places. You know, so many of y'all have come to UNC looking to squeeze glory out of the next fun thing. Or by having it all. By having the perfect body, the perfect resume, being seen as the perfect person. But how has that worked out for you? Do you ever feel like you live at UNC in kind of like a, a UNC duck syndrome? Do you know what I mean when I say that? Like a duck syndrome? Like a duck on the surface of a pond, looks calm, looks placid, is just going fine. But if you were to look underneath the surface, its feet are just kicking so furiously trying to get it from one place to the other. Do you ever feel like you live in that? That on the surface, a lot of you want to look Carolina cool and collected, but underneath you're not. You're fighting furiously to keep it together. And you're so afraid to let other people know that you're struggling. You know, we could look at that and say that's an attitude problem, but it's not an attitude problem. It's a glory problem. We're afraid that if other people knew us and how much we struggled, we wouldn't be glorious. And I'm not saying that because you don't need glory or that you shouldn't look for glory. What I'm saying is the glory that you were made to seek and find is not from yourself, but from the one true and living God. And that so many of our problems come when we look for glory in ourselves, and what we do, and how calm and cool and collected we are. It's so much of our problem. Look here at verse 2 again. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. This psalm starts off as if you're being ushered into the throne room of God. And there were just a multitude of angels, what the Bible calls the seraphim. And their name literally means the burning ones because of their glory and their radiance. And they're ancient, they're full of wisdom, they're incredibly powerful. They're falling at God's feet. And this is a call to worship. However ancient, however wise, however powerful, however glorious the angels are, God is more so. 
And they worship Him not only because He's holy and He's glorious, but because He rules. You see, all of our power is secondary. We come from some place, we have to eat, we have to sleep, we have to learn, we have to work for our power. That is not the case with God. He is the source of all the places. He doesn't need to eat. He doesn't need to sleep. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need angels. He's totally self-sustaining. He dwells above time and space. He guides history and the events of the world so that nothing is beyond His control. What a father is to a family, what a teacher is for his pupils, what a commander is for his army, so God is in relation to the world. He's over it and He rules it. Just look at what this psalm says about His rule. That He's over the waters. Like that which can't be controlled, He controls. He's powerful. He's full of majesty. He breaks down the strong. He makes the nation skip. (laughs) This all comes just from His voice. He speaks and whatever He says is done instantly. His voice flashes forth like fire. It shakes the wilderness. It makes little deer give birth. He makes angels and human beings cry, Glory! Look at Him. Look at what He does. You can't control Him. He's God and you're not. He is incredibly gentle, incredibly beautiful and loving where you get these tender little Bambi moments like deer giving birth in the woods. And He's incredibly powerful and unafraid to use that power as He seeks fit. This psalm talks about the glory of His name, the revelation of who God actually is. Not a God that we've cobbled together that just looks like us in a white robe. This is the one true God who you can know, who's not a better dressed up version of you, who's holy, who's glorious, who rules. And throughout the Bible, whenever the glory of God shows up, the world starts to break. His glory, His gravitas, His weight is too much for reality to bear. Like rock, smoke, and crack. Mountains catch on fire. Even very good people like Moses would die if they saw him face to face. But when God comes in his ultimate expression, when he comes in the person of Jesus, what happens? The world doesn't get turned upside down. People don't, lie, don't die, they actually live. Why? Because his glory is hidden. Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, says about Jesus that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. You know, some of y'all are saying, ah, finally Jesus. Isn't the idea of a king pretty archaic? Like, I have to give up freedom to decide what I do with my body and my soul? That seems so restrictive. I don't want to hear about a God who's a king. I want to hear about Jesus. Give me Jesus. Okay, but Jesus is a king. He says he has a kingdom. He speaks with authority. Like when he tells someone who's dead to get up and rise, like they get up and rise. His voice does something, just like here in the psalm. He speaks with authority. God is his father, which means that he's a monarch. Jesus isn't someone that people elect over themselves and say, rule us, but he comes as a king already. And the apostle Paul looks at the story of Jesus in Philippians 2 and he says, okay, this is incredible. Like, God, who, someone who is in the form of God, who had all the majesty, the invulnerability, the power, the glory that comes with being God, he made himself nothing. Like, he became a man, and not just like a regular man or a middle class person or a king or an emperor, but he makes himself a peasant man. 
And the whole shape of that peasant's man's life was to be a slave. And he didn't, wasn't just a slave, but he died. And he didn't just die, but he died on a cross. Like the most painful death you could die in the ancient world, Jesus died. The most shameful death you could die, where you're naked on a piece of wood in the city garbage dump, while people throw rocks at you and call you names, Jesus died that. Like Paul looks at this and he says, this is incredible. And he looks at his resurrection and he says, therefore Jesus is super exalted, so that his name every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is what? He's Lord. You know, if the story that the Bible is telling is true, then Jesus is both Savior and King. He's Savior and Lord. And Christians have always understood this, that Jesus cannot be your Savior if He's not also your Lord. He must be both Lord and Savior or He's nothing. So is He your King as well as your Savior? When you're hanging out with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, and you're about to make that decision about how physical things are about to get, is Jesus Lord? Or you may not agree with all the rules that our government makes, like the legal drinking age being 21, but if you read God's Word and listen to His voice, then it's clear that you should obey the authorities that He's put in charge. Which means, you know, if you're not 21, you shouldn't drink. Because Jesus is your Lord. If He is... You know, a lot of you have been told your whole life that real freedom comes from throwing off all the restrictions and living like you want to live. That the real you is buried deep down inside and you have to find it by trying to out as many different experiences as possible. And that anyone that curtails that is out to use you or out to abuse you or stop you from having the things that you should have. But the truth is that real freedom isn't found by becoming this totally lawless person. Like, no one thinks that. If I had no laws, I'd be finally free. But real freedom is found by finding the one who guides you into the right law so that you grow into the person that God made you to be. You see, you don't need to become a ruler. You need to be ruled by the right ruler. Isn't this a power play? Isn't this some way to like, take, me of my, take my freedom away? But Christians serve a king who is crucified Not only is power and glory and holiness at the heart of the universe, but so is forgiveness and love and mercy and the freedom to give up power because he's not ruled by it. God is so God that he doesn't even need power like we think we do. You see, both salvation and rule are at the heart of Jesus' work to bring us into God's throne room. If God is only a ruler but not a savior, then you'll always be afraid of God. You'll never enter the throne room and be free to worship because the sight of the true holy king would be terrifying. It would undo you. But if he's only a savior and not a ruler, then you'll be the lord of your life. And you'll never enter the throne room because the sight of the true king will cut too much against your pride and your own sense of authority. But the gospel says that you're free to enter the throne room because a cosmic event has happened. The king descended from his throne to die on your behalf. Can you imagine that? So bad that God had to die on your behalf. That kills your arrogance. That kills your callousness. You're so sinful that God had to die for you. I mean, you know how bad the disease is by how devastating the cure is, right? Like, that's a devastating cure. And so the disease has to be terrible. 
But the gospel also says that you're free to enter the throne room because a cosmic event happened. That God has died for you. That you're so loved, you're so forgiven, that you're free to enter the most holy, most glorious place, and you aren't destroyed because when you enter God's presence with faith in Christ, then you enter with the perfect, spotless, bulletproof standing of God Himself. Christ kills both fear and pride so that you can approach ultimate reality in confidence and with the assurance of His love. So you can go into the throne room and say, Glory! And it's wonderful and it's beautiful and you're not undone, but you're made whole. And you know God and the glory that you sought in so many other places is finally there. And it's yours. And that's beautiful. I'll end with this. I read a story recently of a man named uh, Cobden Sanderson. Not a very common name. But he was a big figure in the arts movement about 100 years ago in London. And the story goes that this guy and his partner created a typeface for printing books that was just gorgeous. It was a true masterpiece of the art. It was art that made art. It had been based on something from the Renaissance, and it was this man's life work. He and his partner spent all of their time, all of their resources, all of, this, all of their money making this typeface, and they only printed the finest books on it. Paradise Lost, the Divine Comedy, Shakespeare, the Bible. But along the way, he and his partner had this falling out. So he takes the typeface, one of a kind, a masterpiece, and he takes it in sections down to the Thames, the river that goes through the heart of London, and he just slowly, over a long period of time, just drops the typeface in the river, like bit by bit by bit, like his whole life's work. All this money, all this time ruined, a fortune ruined, his relationship with his partner ruined because he wanted revenge, because his glory was in this typeface and someone was taking that glory and it ruined his life, it destroyed his masterpiece fast forward a hundred years there's a man named Robert Greene he finds out about this story and he finds some of the books that this guy has printed and he sees the beauty that Cobden squandered that these things are precious. And so he becomes obsessed with the idea of finding the typeface. He reads through all these old letters. He goes to all these different places. And he figures out where was the spot that Cobden was throwing the typeface into the river. And he hires a team of divers, himself, with his own money, to go down to the bottom of the nasty River Thames. Murky, dirty, dark. Like the garbage of the British Empire is washing through these waters. And to look for what this man had thrown away a hundred years ago. And they found it. And they brought it up from the depths. And now this guy, Robert Greene, can make beautiful books again. The likes of which no one has seen for a hundred years. And I tell you that story because the story that the Bible tells is that Jesus Christ, the one true king of the universe, is on his throne. He's glorious and he's beautiful and he's obsessed with you. Because we've ruined ourselves. And we've thrown away our masterwork. And we've hurt people. We've lied, lied and we've cheated. And we've moved people away from us so that we would look calm and cool and collected on the surface. But down underneath, we're dying inside. But Jesus is so obsessed with you that He Himself dives from the top to go all the way to the bottom. To go into your murk, to go into your depths, to go into your darkness. Because He's not afraid of your darkness. And He's not afraid of your sin. 
He is obsessed with you. And He loves you. Because He wants you to know Him and know His glory and to be with Him as your Savior and your Lord. And He is our strength and He is our peace because He is our God. So let me pray. Father, thank You for Your kindness to us. Lord, that we would see and know the one true King of glory. Lord, Your Son Jesus, who gives up His glory, who gives up His power, so that He would become a human being, and not just a middle class human being like us, or an incredibly wealthy human being, but Lord, so that He would become a peasant man. Someone that if we were to see, we think they smell. He lived outside. And Lord, He died in our place, our behalf. God, He cried out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? And You've forsaken Him for our sake. And Lord, when He cries out, It is finished, it is for us that it's finished. Lord, there's no more work for us to do. Lord, our only work is to trust in You, to rest in You and Your work on our behalf. And Lord, I pray that if there's those here who tonight who don't know You and know that work, Lord, that they would. God, they would know Your holiness. God, they would know Your glory. Lord, they would know both Your rule and Your salvation. That You're a good King. You're, the, you're one that rules us, and in Your rule, You set us free. Lord, I pray that all here tonight would know that freedom. In Your Son's name I pray. Amen.